Welcome, episode 76 of the Metrospective. Pete McCarthy along with Tim Britton. How are you, Tim? Surviving, Pete. Same old, same old. I have no new updates. No I new know. Updates. Nobody has any new updates anymore. Conversation has really hit a wall with uh, what's new at this point. Uh, but we do have the uh, ability to chat with Jeff Perlman, of course, the author of The Bad Guys Won, a season of brawling, boozing, bimbo chasing, and championship baseball with Straw Doc, Mookie Nails, The Kid, and the rest of the 86 Mets. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave the title from there. But, uh, Jeff, it's great to have you on. First of all, how are you? Uh, how are you holding up these days? I was doing okay until I heard the subtitle to my book, <laughs> which is so bad. And it wasn't mine. I didn't write it. I just want to say I have a copy here. I did not write the subtitle to this book. And they obviously did it to fill a, you know, it's supposed to look like a tabloid headline. I don't even know the subtitle to my own book. Like, that's a bad sign. <laughs> if you ask me, if you said, we are going to kill you if you cannot recite the subtitle, if my life would be cut short. So, so that's one you. change you would make on the book is the uh, the subtitle right off the bat. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's done well. The book did well. And, it, yes. you know, so I guess, you know, you, you go with what you go with. Otherwise, yeah. I'm OK, though. <laughs> yeah. What, what goes into the, the subtitle for a book? Like how much say do you have? Into, did you name it the bad guys one? First of all, did you get that one at least? All right. I love that question. So my uh, this is my first book ever. And the working title was a bad guys one. I knew as soon as Davy Johnson said to me. Um, actually, he didn't say to me. I saw it in a clip. He said, uh, he was asked, are people now going to love the Mets after they won the World Series? And he said, no. And someone said, why? He said, because the bad guys won. And I was like, great title. And um, my editor was David Hershey at HarperCollins. Really nice guy. Helped me a lot with my career. And he said to me one day, we want to name the book The Wild Bunch. And I was like, no. And he's like, no, we really think it's better and blah, blah, blah. And the funny thing is, I fought that super hard and I had no legs to stand on. I was new to this. And, but if you look in the book, it, it actually drives me crazy. And the last page of the uh, images, it says, there's a picture of a bunch of them drunk. And it says, instead, management uncomfortable with the, with the hell-raising antics of the Wild Bunch. And Wild Bunch is capitalized because he thought that was going to be the name of the book. So that little... This could have been called the wild guy, the wild guys, and the wild bunch, and that would have been horrible. I don't think that would have done as well. Oh, it's a sucky title. <laughs> so. and, and it's a great book. I, I read it years ago now. Uh, I mean, it's been 16 years since it came out. Yeah. Um, you know, what, I, I, I guess all these years later, what still sticks with you as far as the, the subject matter of the book and what made the 86 Mets so unique and worthy of having this book written about them? All right, so I grew up in New York in a town called Mail Pack, New York, and I was 14 years old during that season, 13 going up to 14. So it was uh, it was right in my wheelhouse. I mean, I I was got my my I opened the book with this. My two houses up from me on Everett Lane. My one of my good friends was Dennis Gargano, and his dad Vinny Gargano was a diehard Met fan, and he would sit there on his couch smoking cigarettes, drinking Coke, and watching the Mets on TV. I mean, I could picture that right now sitting here. I could picture this scene. And I would sit there and I would kind of play with Dennis. And then I'd come in and talk to Mr. Gargano about the Mets. And he'd be like, I'm telling you, this Gooden kid, he's going to be something, you know, or Ronnie Darling, watch the snap on the slider and blah, blah, blah. It was really educational. And um, it was a cool opportunity for me for my first book to dive into nostalgia, um, which I've now done a lot with books. But I love diving into nostalgia. I love taking a subject that you grew up loving and being able to really dissect it and analyze it and the you know to me gary carter is this hero and then you're sitting next to gary carter at spring training talking about the very things you loved 
So that was really, it was a treat. This book of all the books I've written, this in the USFL book, my last book, were just treats for me, like joys for me. And I mean, yes, what makes that team unique? The number one thing I always think of that always pops in my head is after every game at home, they would bring a keg into the locker room, into the clubhouse, and they would be sitting around 10, 15, 20 of those guys just tapping a keg. And then they would all go out to Finn McCool as a bar in Long Island. And you would never see that now, ever, ever. You would never see that now. For good or for bad, you'd never see that now. And I just think it really speaks to a time period uh, and a coolness about that moment. Now they have cookies. Now they have cookies. Not even. They would eat. They're so – everyone. I'm, it makes me sound like I'm longing for the days of Coke and beer, which I'm not. <laughs> but it really made for some interesting teams and some interesting time periods. And the idea that you would see, you know – Mike Trout and Otani and Albert Pujols going out to a bar in Anaheim after the game and being surrounded by fans is so preposterous. The idea you'd see any of those guys drinking a beer is preposterous. It's just it's just a different world now, you know? You can't even find a bar in Anaheim that's open after the game. So that's, I live that's... near Anaheim. You can't find anything in Anaheim that's open unless the, the Disney fireworks. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah, you, you mentioned this was your first book. Kind of what was what made you think that you were the person that, that could tackle this topic and, and... – how, how much of that was driven by your personal connection to this team? So I was a uh, I was at Sports Illustrated at the time, and a friend of mine named John Wertheim, who's a really good writer, did a book about Venus and Serena Williams. And I I'd never thought about writing a book, not really. And um, I was competitive with him. We were really good friends, but I always it was kind of like he he I and a guy named Grant Wall, a soccer writer, came up together. And it was always kind of like, what are they doing? What should I do? And around that time, an agent came to me. An agent named Susan Reed, and she said, um, "Have you ever thought about writing books?" And then she said, "Well, what about a book about the '86 Mets?" And I, I knew nothing; I'd never thought about writing books. And as soon as, soon as she said '86 Mets, I was like, "That's a, that's actually a great idea for a book." And so I would love to take credit or say this is my genius, but it really, an agent just came up to me. She was my agent for that one book, then she left the business, and she set me on my way. You know. You've written a lot of books since about individuals from Walter Payton to Brett Favre, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds. Was it more challenging? Tackle you got to write about what fifteen to twenty different guys, and as much as you did a ton of interviews for those other books, was there a unique challenge to doing an entire team in the case of the Mets? Yeah, team books are much much harder for me than individual books because um, what you really have to avoid are is the repetition of a season. Um, bad. I would never call out, but like the baseball books I've read or the, the team books that I've read that I don't like are, and then against the Padres, Ojeda threw eight innings and then Myers came in the next night, blah, blah, blah. And the next night we've all read those books at somewhere along the line where it's more about the season and the repetitiveness. And like, I have a book coming out later this year about the, the Shaq Kobe era Lakers. The hardest thing is not making it a repetition of, this playoff series against Portland. Then they played Portland next year and Portland next year. It's just, it's hard. Um, and this book was, it, it was, it was one season. It was tough because they, they ran away with the division. So a lot of the games were meaningless toward the end of the year. That made it really difficult. Um, you also can get in a very easy trap of writing about the main characters too much. Like you could have made this book. There were four. I mean, you can make the arguments. It's a Carter Hernandez, good and strawberry dominant team. And it would be very easy to make the book lean heavy on those guys. And you could write a pretty good book on those four guys. Uh, so to me, what I learned from this book and what I really focus on is, all right, I want to get Ed Hearn in here. I want to know about Ed Hearn, the backup catcher. I want to know 
about um, Ed Lynch getting traded after all these years with the Mets and him being traded. I want to know what it's like for Mookie Wilson suddenly to be kind of upstaged by Lenny Dykstra. I want to know about George Foster, who'd been there since 82, you know, kind of being hated by his teammates and let go. So what I really developed is a love of the lesser characters and placing an emphasis on those guys as much as I could. Kevin Mitchell is one that I remember all these years later. Love. He uh, loved Kevin Mitchell. He's, he was probably my favorite as far as when I went to see him, he was, he was this really thing about Mitchell. He's actually the sympathetic figure from that team, which is weird because he ended up winning an MVP award with San Francisco and having a really good career. But I mean, basically Frank Cashin who was a great GM. He knew he needed to keep good and he knew he needed to keep strawberry, but there was two young African-American stars and they were troubled. You know, they were troubled. And he kind of, his solution was let's trade Kevin Mitchell. who actually wasn't trouble. I mean, he's a pretty decent guy, you know, like, so I thought Mitchell was a really fascinating guy off that off that team. I did. Yeah. Did Did you have a, a favorite interview when you went back to talk to to all these guys over over time? I mean, Mitchell was high up there. Uh, Bobby Ojeda was great. I love Bobby Ojeda. Just fascinating guy. Um, for me, and this I really this was a great lesson for this book for me that's carried over throughout my career is the uh, the Bat Boys were huge. The Clubhouse guys were huge. Like the stories I got from them. Um, were probably the best stories I received. And, and what I really learned is is the idea that Jeff, the guys, like those guys were had as much access to 90% of this as Dwight Gooden and Gary Carter. They've just never been asked about it before. So those stories are really fresh and those stories are available and they're so thrilled to talk. And then like the only guy in that team, the two guys in that team who have maintained, I've maintained some semblance of a relationship with, Ed Hearn, the backup catcher, and Ron Darling. And... Um, I remember Ed Hearn gave me one of the best quotes in this book, just memorable-wise. It's not classy, but when he talked about Rafael Santana peeing on himself, and his quote was, cock as big as a bat. And it's so preposterous, but that was a direct quote from Ed Hearn, who a lot of people writing a book about the 86 Mets might have been like, eh, he only played 50 games. He was up and down. He wasn't that important. But even a money quote like that, one little quote, remembering Rafael Santana peeing on himself is, you know, for this kind of book, really, really golden. How much fun is it to do something like that? You're getting obviously behind the scenes stories and it feels like almost all of them are, are you have, you can print so many of them because that's the, the feeling of the book. Whereas, you know, at SI or at Newsday or anywhere else you work, like most of that stuff's not getting in. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you're your own boss in a lot of ways. And, and it was a really liberating writing a book can be a really liberating experience because you're allowed, you really are allowed to be the narrator of the book. Um, you are the narrator. Like the best example is um, the song Get, Get Metsmerized, which I honestly, I, I'm not saying this book changed the world in any way, shape, or form. I think people started knowing of the song Get Metsmerized after I wrote this book because it was this forgotten, nobody, I saw a reference to it in like a daily news article from 1986. I'd never heard it before. It definitely wasn't on YouTube at that point. And there's this preposterously awful song called Get Metsmerized that George Foster decided to record to make some money back in 1986 because at the time, Goofy Rap, Super Bowl Shuffle, you know, that was the kind of thing and all i did all i wanted to do all i wanted to do was write everything i could about get mesmerized so i bought the album online i tracked down all the background singers i found the producers and it became this chapter get mesmerized and and if i were doing an si profile of the 86 mets uh with a limited amount of time uh with a bunch of editors maybe that gets nothing and instead it becomes a a pretty big chapter in the book so i love that stuff how about you know, on Sunday nights now, everybody's locking into the last dance and the nostalgia going back and uh, reliving the Bulls. And 
there is some behind the scenes access, I suppose, with the, the cameras that there are practices. Could you imagine if the 86 Mets, if somebody had that kind of access while it was happening and what those videos might look like, right? Like Rodman's out in Vegas uh, partying and there's a camera there for him the whole time. You could have the Mets, I don't know, in, in Houston at that bar or whatever happened there, all oh, yeah. these things. It'd be amazing. The uh, I've actually had, I have, I've had this book options six times maybe. And there's always something that gets in the way of it. Uh, Major League Baseball, the Mets, the Mets, uh, have, the Mets have never, you guys may disagree with me hundred percent. I actually feel like the Mets have never given this team the full gusto celebration. I think they've been embarrassed of this team a lot. And I think they're embarrassed of goodness troubles and strawberries troubles. And they just don't love the idea of a cinematic or television production with some guy in a Mets hat snorting Coke off the ass of a hooker which I understand, but I do think this is their best team they've ever had, their most exciting team they've ever had. The World Series alone was so magical that I, it's always made me upset that the Mets don't quite treat this team uh, the way they should. In my I do opinion. feel like that changed a little bit with the 30-year anniversary a few years back. Yeah, they did that. It was okay. I watched that recently. It was okay. I just, I don't know. It's a little weird. I do, I do think they've, they've distanced themselves. You know, they pissed off Mookie Wilson couple years ago which is almost impossible to do and guys the nicest human being on the history of the planet and they pissed off Mookie I don't even so I just think overall I mean the Mets struggle obviously in many areas and and I don't think they've treated this team overall particularly well could could you imagine a team even remotely like this existing in 2020 like what is is that possible at all I did a when I was late in my sports illustrated career the Oakland A's, I covered a lot of Oakland A's back then. And they were um, they were known as, quote, the wild, you know, the wild team. Because they had Giambi and Zito and Hudson and Eric Chavez. And they were kind of the wild team. So I, I pitched a story at SI where I was going to spend a week with the Oakland A's. And I uh, I flew with them. I flew with the Oakland A's from West Coast to East Coast. And I kind of had anticipation of what the flight would be like. And the flight was basically like this conversation we're having now, which is a bunch of guys with headphones and listening to their music. And I think at one point, Mike Magnente, a relief pitcher, borrowed Terrence Long's CDs. That was the most exciting thing to happen on that plane. It just doesn't work that way anymore. It's just not, you couldn't have it. You actually could not, it'd be like taking uh, a musket and putting it in modern warfare. It just doesn't, it wouldn't compute what happened in 86 and happens now. It's a different, different world completely. Well, how about that plane ride from Houston? Did you had you heard anything about it before you started writing the book? And what was your first inkling that, oh, this is going to be a, a key part of this book? I mean, someone said to me, I'm trying to think who it was, maybe Ron Darling. Ron Darling was great. And he said to me at one point, I remember this description. He was talking about the flight home from Houston. They begged Frank Cashin to allow the wives to fly with them. Frank Cashin was really opposed to the idea, but they just won the NLC. If we win the NLCS, Frank, all right, the wives can fly. And I remember Darling telling me his, it was something specifically about women in their patent leather vomiting all over themselves. And the thing I've learned in, in, in reporting, especially books, is once you get one person to open up, other people, people for, feel more comfortable opening up. So if I can get this one person to talk about that. Well, I talked to Ron. He was talking about the flight. Oh, man, you talked to Ron. Let me tell you about the flight. Hmm. And it became this thing. And like, um, I remember learning about the scum bunch you know, which was Danny Heap, Jesse Orozco, and Doug Siss sitting in the back of the plane. And once you find out about the scum bunch, you go to those guys. And and uh, Sisk was a really, you know, big, big Doug Sisk was a big help in this book. 
oh man, let me tell you about that flight. You know, blah, blah, blah. We were throwing peas at people, blah, 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 back and forth. So, you know, one interview leads to five, leads to 10, leads to 20. I knew nothing about that until people start talking about it. And then all I want to do is learn it. As someone, uh, you know, I was I was not old enough to enjoy the 1986 World Series as a fan. Uh, what is it like? At what point did you realize in your youth, growing up watching that team, that this was a different kind of team off the field than most baseball teams? I don't think I knew as a kid, to be honest. I don't think I knew. It wasn't like I was. I just loved the baseball, and it was. I remember like. I mean, I will say this. I vividly remember they had a, uh, they did a music video for a song called Let's Go Mets Go. And um, it's cheesy, cheesy, cheesy. But like at the time, it was pretty awesome and like kind of badass. And I love that song. And I bought the single at home. And it was basically the Mets midseason, kind of like the Bears did the year before at the Super Bowl Shuffle, saying, we are so cocky and confident we're going to win. We're actually going to do a song that involves us winning. Um and I remember loving that and sort of falling in love with the badass nature of releasing a song. But did I know they were out drinking? And I didn't know when they said at the time, Dwight Gooden overslept the parade. I just assumed he overslept the parade. You know, I didn't know any better. I was just a kid. So I didn't know until later on. Why do you think it worked for the Mets? I mean, number one, I always say this. Their talent was actually ridiculous. Like, I always say, this is what I always say. First base base Keith Hernandez who I personally believe should be in the Hall of Fame and he's the best fielding first baseman of all time and you're the if you're the best defensive player at any position I think that should be a strong hall consideration um plus you won two world series uh Backman and Tuffle could both start for any team second base you had two guys not any team but a lot of teams second base Rafael Santana at short was a weak point we could skip over that you had Ray Knight and Howard Johnson at third base two legit starting third baseman Carter was the best catcher in baseball um, the outfield, you had Strawberry, who you could argue was the best right fielder in baseball. You had two elite center fielders, um, Wilson and Dykstra. You had Kevin Mitchell. You had Danny Heap, who was the best pinch hitter in baseball. And then they had two closers, two top-flight closers, Orozco and McDowell. Their starting rotation of Gooden, Ojeda, Fernandez, uh, Darling, and Rick Aguilera was a fifth starter. And Rick Aguilera was one of the top five closers in the 90s. It was just a preposterous collection of talent. Um that came along, got along really well together. Hernandez was a perfect leader, a perfect leader. Um, they were just, and they, Frank Cashin, as far as like, you just think about some of the trades. Like they got Bobby Ojeda from Boston. Ojeda was a relatively nondescript pitcher. He switches leagues, which meant a lot more back then. And he wins 18 games. You know, the Carter trade, they didn't really give up that much. You have Floyd Yeomans, Yubi Brooks, Mike Fitzgerald, not a ton. The Hernandez trade, they give up Neil Allen and Rick Owenby. Um, he was, they, were, they just made a lot of really savvy deals and these guys got along to, uh, really well together. Yeah, like I'm trying to think that's probably the best National League team, at least of the 1980s, right? It's like them and the, oh. them and the Tigers uh, as the, the two best teams from, from that decade, maybe. Yeah, I thought the, um, it's interesting because the 84 Cubs are really, really good, but they just did, they got beat by the Padres and did make that. Yeah, the Mets were just, I mean, even like you think about the Howard Johnson trade, they gave up Walt Perrow to Detroit to get Howard Johnson. Howard Johnson was a cornerstone third baseman who started a bunch of all-star games. Like it was, they were, it was a really, really well-constructed team. Yeah. Someone's baby's crying. (laughs) And then uh, Davey Johnson as the manager of that team. uh, How good a fit was he for that to kind of, kind of let roll the ball out and let them play, I guess, for, for most of that season. Yeah. I mean, he didn't, it's funny, actually, if you look back, you'll see a lot of articles at the time and it's like, Davey Johnson is ahead of the time. He's using 
a computer, right? And like, there's only so much you could actually do with a computer then. You know, like they made it sound like he was like the $6 million man and he, he was basically putting lineups into a computer and figuring out tendencies of, you know, this hitter versus, it wasn't anything, you know, brainiac. He was just very laid back. You know, he drank beers with his players. He was a guy who was to stay out of trouble and, you know, you can go, I don't care if you go out, just, you know, take care of business on the field. And I mean, in hindsight, I, I think you can make an argument that that team did not handle Strawberry and Gooden very well. And nowadays, if those guys were coming up, there'd be so many more protections. Uh, you'd have, you'd have people hired literally to sort of shadow them and help them out. None of that existed. They just went out, you know, they were 20 something years old going out and getting wasted in New York city. Um, but I just think overall for that team, if we're talking hyper specific, he was, he was just, he knew what he had. He didn't overthink it. He rolled out the lineup. It worked really well. There weren't that many, there weren't that many variations that season as far as, um, there weren't that many moments where you'd say, wow, that was a really genius move by David Johnson. It was more, you also didn't have many, wow, that was a really stupid move by David Johnson. Well, he had the, the big speech, right? Spring training. Yeah, well, definitely. But I actually think the biggest speech for David Johnson was um, after they ruined the plane and they got the bill from Frank Cashin because the airline was going to charge him money. And he basically said in front of the team, he's like, I, I can't believe this. This is so horrible. You guys should be ashamed. He's like, nah, listen, you know, you've made this this franchise so much money. And after we kicked the Red Sox ass in the World Series, blah, 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 blah. So F them and blah, blah, blah. Um, I thought that was a, a magical moment for that team and, and Davey in particular. No, it all it all fit into uh, the psyche that that made them champions. And you know, I, I guess in the years since, I did interview Ray Knight a, a few years back, and and he kind of you know repelled against the bad guys. One kind of uh, I guess reputation that the team now has. I was separate from a, a lot of what was going on. Do, do you notice some? different factions with the group with how the team is is remembered in a lot of ways and your book is uh you know a, a big key to how uh that team is is still remembered yeah i mean it's kind of funny the reactions have been varied um actually i recently dm'd howard johnson for something and i was like i don't know if you remember i wrote the bad guys one he's like love that book and i was <laughs> like oh great ron darling well i remember when the book came out i was supposed to appear in the the long defunct best damn sports show it was really excited for me. I was flown out to LA from New York. It's going to be on the show. It was my first national TV appearance really. And it was going to be on with uh, Lenny Dykstra and Ron Darling. And uh, I first, the producer tells me, she's like, yeah, Jeff, Lenny, it turns out Lenny's not going to do it. He's really pissed about the book and he's not going to come on with you. I was like, Oh, she's like, but Ron is here. He's coming. And I remember sitting there in the green room waiting to meet Ron Darling. And thinking, oh, he's going to rip into me. This is going to be really bad. And he comes up to me and he goes, ah, oh, Jeff, read the book. You nailed it, man. You just nailed it. <laughs> and it was one of the biggest reliefs of my life, you know. And and I feel like most of those guys are pretty happy with the book. Pretty content. I know Mookie was good with it. And Ed Hearn obviously was good with it. Um, and, you know, Ray Knight makes a point. Like, Ray Knight wasn't that kind of guy. Uh, Mookie mm -hmm. Wilson wasn't that kind of guy. George Foster wasn't that kind of guy. Um Gary Carter certainly wasn't that kind of guy. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like everyone on, on that team was snorting Coke and, <laughs> you know, getting wasted, but, but the vast majority were. <laughs> I don't think we're getting uh, Lenny Dykstra and Ron Darling in a room anytime soon. No, no, that is a bad one. Yeah, no. 
the the one other thing we wanted to ask you that's kind of Mets related, obviously, is uh, a story you wrote a little more than 20 years ago now about John Rocker uh, with the Braves. And that was in the offseason after the Braves had beaten them in the 99 NLCS. I had actually thought it was before because I remember really disliking John Rocker uh, before that NLCS. Yeah. Kind of, you know, I, I was reading up some of the stuff you've written about that since then. And really, if, you know, if the Braves do better in the World Series, that's a whole different story for you, right? Like, like you had something ready to run in a different circumstance. Yeah, because I was reporting it out during the NLCS. And the idea was this story was going to run um, either late in the NLCS or in the World Series. There was going to be a profile of John Rocker. So during the NLCS, I spent, you don't get that much time with guys one-on-one time during a playoff series because there's a gazillion media members. So I probably got my 10-minute tier, my 15 minutes here. I called his parents, interviewed his mom, interviewed his dad, talked to a few teammates. And I had, I was a young kind of dumb writer, and I had in my head that the profile was going to be, um, it was going to be John Rocker, the misunderstood guy. And look, he, he seems rude and obnoxious, blah, 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 but he's really a good guy. And I wrote this story and I filed it to SI and it, it ended with a very warm scene of John Rocker. I think his dog had just died and he's cradling his dog as a little boy and he's crying and it's sensitive John Rocker. And what happened is the, the Braves advanced pretty quickly. Then they lost the Yankees in four. So the story never ran. And I ended up uh, going down, back down to Georgia to meet with Rocker. And that's kind of when the infamous, you know, drive around Atlanta and foreigners and, you know, blah, blah. And the funny thing is, ever says the funny thing is, he tells me all this stuff. And he goes, at one point, he said, um, he's like, I'll tell you something, but it's off the record. Now, this is already after he's called a black teammate a fat monkey. Yeah, he's ripped foreigners. He's ripped New Yorkers. Like, everything bad you can imagine. He's like, I'm going to tell you something off the record. I'm like, okay. Thinking, what could this possibly be? He says, Bobby Valentine, man, not a good manager. I don't care what they say, not a good manager. Okay, I will keep that off the record, not a big deal. <laughs> it was like all the things he told me, that's his big off the record thing. I also always use that as an example because people used to say, well, maybe he didn't know he was being interviewed. Well, he wouldn't have told me something off the record if he didn't know he was being interviewed. And I had to take the court out. And it's amazing. I was just going back kind of reliving some of it I, I think there was like a Braves blog that wrote about it I, almost all of his teammates to a man hated him and said as much and were willing to say it both at the time after the article came out when he rejoined the team when he was traded to Cleveland like there, there wasn't anybody defending any aspect of you know John Rocker on that team I think there were um certain players who probably maybe liked him kind of um a couple of years ago, Chipper Jones wrote his autobiography and I was actually sitting in an airport and I was curious if he addressed the rocker thing. So I'm kind of skimming through the book. And he talked about this writer who took advantage of John Rocker. And I was like, wait a second, what? <laughs> you know, like, really? Um, but ultimately, I think it's funny. Rocker since then has gone on to uh, all levels of imbecile, you know, whatever nation. Uh, he starts selling speaking this T-shirts. He says all sorts of inflammatory things. Um, he's just a gross guy. So I think most people knew he was a gross guy long before I wrote that story. And if I, if I hadn't come along and, and written that, he would have expressed that stuff to some other reporter mm -hmm. inevitably and it would have come out. I just happened to be the guy in the car. When was the last time you had any kind of an interaction with him? He's right here. You want to talk to him? He's <laughs> on, he's, <laughs> um, Bunk buddies now. Yeah. The last time I saw him was when he was with Cleveland and I was, um, I was doing a story about Edgar Martinez. The Mariners were visiting the Indians. 
and I was in the Indians uh, locker clubhouse, maybe trying to talk to Ellis Burks or someone. And um, Rocker starts following. This is a, the year after the story came out, I guess, the season after. And Rocker has a little disposable Kodak camera with him like they used to have. And he just starts following me around the clubhouse, snapping pictures of me. And that was the last time I've ever, uh, I've ever had a conversation with him. Yeah, what was the reaction like for you in not just, you know, the Braves clubhouse at some point, but every clubhouse in Major League Baseball after that story comes out? It was uncomfortable for a while. It was. I, uh, I remember, like, the Dodgers PR guy. I was supposed to do a story on Gary Sheffield for SI, and the Dodgers PR guy told me, Chef doesn't want to talk to me. And I remember thinking that's weird because actually I knew him relatively well. And it'd be weird that Gary Sheffield would be defending John Rocker, like of all the guys. So I went up to Sheffield on my own and he's like, I never said that. And it was just like a publicist like, worth looking out for his guy. But there were, I got chewed out badly and embarrassingly by Will Clark in front of the entire Baltimore Orioles clubhouse during spring training. Um, Kerry Wood refused to talk to me. Uh, you know, I remember walking through clubhouses and guys definitely whispering and pointing and, that sort of thing. And and the first guy I remember who made me feel generally like better. And it's funny. He's not that, he wasn't that nice of a guy to deal with, but Jim Edmonds was on the Cardinals and I was doing a story on him. Actually, he was on the angels about to get traded. And I was like, look, my name's Jeff Perone. And I wrote the John rocker thing. And he's like, you don't even have to bring that up. That guy's an asshole. Like I have no, you think I'm not going to talk to you because of that. And I always sort of thought, okay, Jim Edmonds, he's a, whatever he does, he has a nice place in my heart. Yeah, well, like I, I think I've read you, you had a little bit of guilt after that story ran uh, for a little while. Obviously, the way Rocker's career and life have gone since then probably assuages some of that for you. H- how long did you feel that way? Were, were you worried that you would just be kind of branded as the guy who wrote that story? It wasn't about being. Um, it wasn't about being branded. It was mainly I never thought like he was an idiot from Macon, Georgia. Right? He didn't complete college. He's from this really, really, really sort of conservative, you know, MAGA neck of the woods. And you throw him in front of a reporter and you you really do insist that your that you're, um, athletes partake in the media. And you just can't expect that they're all going to be politically correct and cultured. And what, like it's, a, it's an unfair expectation. And I just thought for him to get uh, suspended, fined, demoted, I just didn't agree with it. I just didn't did not agree with it at all. Like you put him out here. You you told him to talk to me. He's here. He's a moron. You knew he was a moron. Like it's not if you spent five minutes with him on your own, you probably knew this wasn't a good idea, but you put him up to it. So I just I always felt like um I just thought it was unfair. And I was a part of that. You know, I didn't I didn't root for any of that. I actually spoke out saying he shouldn't have been, but it was my article that kind of resulted in that. So later on in life he has definitely verified that he is not a very sympathetic figure. But at the time and over the next couple of years, I, I, yeah, I felt kind of bad about it. Well, I know you spoke about this at length as part of your podcast, Two Writers Slinging Yang. So may Mets fans want to hear more about the, the John Rocker Chronicles. Uh, they can check it out over there. But uh, Jeff, it's been great picking your brain and uh, going back to that 86 Mets team. The bad guys won. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Yes, yeah, nice talking about it. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Jeff. All right. Take care, guys.